Well, good morning and uh, Merry Christmas. So excited to start the holiday kind of season uh, with you. Maybe you opened up your Advent calendar and you got some candy and you're really excited about that. And if your parents haven't bought one yet, well, now they feel guilty and they're putting it on their Amazon list right now to get delivered to your house. But we're excited about the Christmas season. We're excited to start the Christmas season here at Valley Bible Church. And, and as we do that, here's what I want to do. I, I want to draw a comparison in your mind that I think will be really helpful as we embark on our Christmas series. The comparison is this. I, I want you to think of the Christmas story as like your, your family Christmas card. So, so think about your Christmas card. Think about that family photo. You, you think of the snapshot, right? The, 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 the still frame that is captured there, right? All the kids are staring at the camera. All the kids are smiling. Everybody's in place. Nobody is slouching. All the shirts look good. They're not untucked. Everything is perfect, right? We love that just glamorous and just perfect photo. But every parent knows, every family member knows, that snapshot does not tell the full story. It's much more messy than that. It's much more chaotic than that. Why? Because really, there's just a bunch of misfits that you're trying to corral to get them to just stop poking each other and, 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 and stop sticking out their tongue and, and to open their eyes, to stop eating their brother's hair. I mean, whatever it is. That family photo is full of misfits. And it gets messy and it's chaotic. But we love those little misfits. They make Christmas Mary, right? That's kind of what we feel is one of the joys of Christmas is having those little kids around, running around, going crazy. So difficult to actually get them to smile. But man, when they open up that present that we saved for and they smile at us and they hug us, it's all worth it. Well, let me tell you, I think the first Christmas is exactly like that. We take the snapshot, right? What we know, the big elements and everything. And when we first take a first look at it or just kind of glance over it or recall what we know of the Christmas story, it's kind of like that snapshot. Everything is perfectly placed. We have Jesus. We have Mary and Joseph. We, they're surrounding him, which is as proud parents. There's praise from shepherds. Everything looks perfect. But really, when we look past that snapshot, the Christmas story is incredibly messy, and it's full of misfits. People who are outsiders, people who are, well, marked by shame. People that we would say are sinners. But just like we as parents love to have our little misfits in that Christmas card, so too God loves to have misfits in the Christmas story. And that's why we're calling our Christmas series. For the next three weeks, we're calling it Mary Misfits, because God is very merry to have misfits to be a part of the Christmas story. And I think the big lesson we'll learn is this, is that all the misfits belong in God's family. Now what I want to do before we jump into Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2, I want to set up chapter 1 for you. I want you to think of that Christmas card again. Think of Matthew as the photographer. Right? So he's getting everybody in place. He's putting the small ones up front and the big ones in the back. What Matthew is going to do in the first couple verses, actually the first about 17, 18 verses, is he's going to do kind of a family photo. But it's a family tree. It's a genealogy. All of these names are listed. It's the parts of the Bible that you usually, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, it's the parts that you kind of skip over. Right? It's all the hard to pronounce names. But this is very intentional by Matthew here. 
He's setting this family portrait. And here's what we're going to see. In that portrait, when we look at the center, there's some really great characters in there. But when we zoom out, we see that there's a lot of misfits in there. There's a lot of odd choices in there. And yet Matthew is making a very significant point. Because here's what we see. When we look at this family tree, when we look at this family photo of Jesus, you know, it kind of looks more like a mugshot. It doesn't look like that impressive Christmas card you send to your family and friends. It looks kind of that photo you get after you're booked for a crime because the people included in this photo, they're not the polished. They're not the impressive. They're not the glamorous. They're not the astute. They're those that have been marked by shame. Those that have fallen into sin. And yet Matthew picks them to be right there in Jesus' Christmas card. So let's jump to Matthew chapter 1 and let's see this. And I want to kind of summarize the main idea of our message this morning as this. And I think this is the main idea that Matthew is making in giving us this family tree. So if you're going to one thing, I want you to write down this big idea. The big idea for this morning is this. Jesus' Christmas card is a mugshot. Jesus' Christmas card is a mugshot. It's not impressive. It's not glamorous. It's not everybody perfectly placed in pretty. No. Jesus has some really messy people in his family tree. Jesus has some misfits in this photo, and it looks like a mugshot more than a Christmas card. It's a mugshot because it's filled with, we could say, criminals, people that don't have great behavior. Now let's look at Matthew chapter 1, and I want to just kind of show, you may have to look down at your Bible, so I hope you have a Bible uh, near you, but you're going to see a kind of rhythm here that's going on in these first 17 verses. Again, this is a genealogy, so it's a family tree. At verse 1, it says, The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Names aren't too difficult yet, but these two names right here are very important because they're going to set kind of a rhythm to our passage. We're going to see this, that the genealogy is really set in kind of three groups. And they're kind of grouped in, in groups of 14. So you have 14 people, and then 14 people, and then 14 people. Real anchors of this are Abraham and David. Look at verse 2. It says, Abraham was the father of Isaac. So he's already been mentioned. Now he kind of anchors this first group of 14. Jump down to verse 6. And it says, And David was the father of Solomon. So again, you have that other character. You have Abraham. David. You have from Abraham to David, 14. David all the way to exile, or the deportation, verse 12 says, deportation to Babylon. That's the exile. That's when the people of God were moved out of the land. And then it says, from when that happened, then to Jesus is another 14 generations. Now, I said Matthew is being a photographer. Now, why is that important? Because Matthew is really being selective here. Think about it just for a moment. You look at this genealogy, you see these three groups, and you see, okay, 14, 14, 14. You think to yourself, wow, that's just very poetic. It's very symmetrical. It seems to align itself, well, really, really well. That's very convenient. Matthew is designing this. He's, he's molding this genealogy. We know this because he is skipping over some names. Because he wants to fit in certain people. 
He's not incorrect in following the family line, but there's some people he's saying, no, we're going to move them out. I'm going to jump a couple generations. We know this because the first group covers about 18, or sorry, it covers about 800 years from Abraham to David. 800 years. You can't cover that in 14 generations. That, that would not be nearly enough. 14 generations is about 350 years. So we're missing 450 years of people. So even if they live a very long lifespan, clearly Matthew is skipping over some people, which was very common then. We see the same thing. The second group covers about 400 years, so that's close. But the next group covers about 600 years. Again, he's being very selective. He's choosing who's in the photo. He, he's, he's organizing the lights, right? He's telling where everybody should be placed. And the first two names, the anchor that he really brings up, Man, these are the impressive people. So think of Matthew as that photographer. He sets it up. He puts two people in the center of his frame. And they are the impressive people. We're going to see once we zoom out that the, the card kind of changes. And he starts to include some misfits. And that's when it becomes more like a mugshot. But let's look at these kind of anchor people. Let's look at these impressive people and see what this says about Jesus. Again, back at verse 1. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham is the one who kicks off the first group of people in the family tree. David, the second group of people. Well, what does he mean by son of David? He mentions that first in verse 1. Well, Matthew loves this term. He uses this of Jesus on many occasions. Son of David. This is a powerful here. It's not just tying Jesus to David. It's tying Jesus to a promise that was given to David. If we look at 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 16, or sorry, chapter 6, and we look at verse 12, there's a very specific promise that was given. 2 Samuel chapter 6, and there's a promise given to David, and it's a, it's a very incredible promise that was given to him. Sorry, chapter 7, verse 12. Chapter 7, verse 12. And, and listen to this. This is when David, it, it, God is, is speaking to David about the end of his life. Look at verse 12 of 2 Samuel chapter 7. It says, when your days are filled and you lie down with your fathers, he's speaking to David about his death. He wants to speak about what will happen after David dies. He says in verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for you your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Right there, it just sounds like, hey, don't worry about the throne after you. I'm going to give you a son. He'll sit on your throne. The kingdom will continue. But then more is spoken. And it looks like we're talking about a son that's not just the next son in line, but is another son. Look at verse 13. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now this is a different son. This is not just about succession. Right? This is not just about uh, another son inheriting the throne and the kingdom going on. Now he's saying, not only will your kingdom go on, I'm promising you another generation, but I'm also promising you a son who will establish your kingdom, my kingdom, forever. Now this is significant. This is picked up later by the prophet 
Isaiah, and he speaks about a son who will sit on the throne of David, and he will be called these amazing things. He'll be called a wonderful counselor. He'll be called mighty God. This, this brought to the people of Israel's mind that there would be a king who would come who would sit on God's throne, David's throne, forever. This is what they were waiting for. As Pastor Matt talked about how we're waiting for Advent, right, for Jesus Christ to come again, so too before Jesus was born, they were waiting, waiting for a king to come, to bring God's rule and reign over his people once again. They're looking for a forever king. And Matthew is saying, guys, here he is. Here he is, Jesus, son of David. This is the guy whose promise we've been waiting for. We've been waiting for this fulfillment. We've been waiting for the one who will sit on the throne of David and who will reign forever. This is a big promise. Right now, the photographer, right, Matthew, is making a great Christmas card. He's saying, this is King Jesus. The second name he gives, if we go back to Matthew chapter 1, is he's called the son of Abraham. Son of Abraham. What does that mean? Well, Abraham was the one who got a promise, a promise before David. We could say that Abraham was the one to get the first promise that really birthed the people of God. Abraham receives a promise, and Abraham, or sorry, in Genesis chapter 22, we see God speak of this promise. Look at verse 18. He says, and in your offspring, Abraham, again, he's speaking like he did or like he would later to David. Hey, I want to talk about what happens to you in the next generation. King David, you're going to have a son, but that son's going to be more than just, just a son. There's going to be a son in your line who will sit on the throne forever. The same thing is happening now here with David. Now, this, of course, is before David. This is God speaking to Abraham. It says, in your offspring. So somewhere down the line in your family tree, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. I am going to bless the nations, not just the people of Israel. Most of the Old Testament is following the story of one family line, the family line of Abraham. It's following the Jews. But at the very beginning, we see that God is not just concerned with Israel. God is not just concerned with the Jews. He's concerned with the globe. He's concerned with the world. And he tells Abraham, I'm going to execute a rescue plan not just for the Jews, not just for Israel, but for the world. And through your offspring, through a son of your uh, um, family line, I will bless the world. Now, it's interesting that Matthew would use this because Matthew closes off the gospel with a quote from Jesus where Jesus tells his disciples, he says, I want you to make disciples of all the nations. Just like here, Abraham promised there will be a blessing from your offspring. This blessing will fall on all nations. Matthew closes his gospel with Jesus' promise to his disciples that they will make disciples, followers of Jesus Christ from all nations. So what is Matthew doing? Matthew is saying, here's the blessing. Here's the blessing that we've been waiting for. The blessing from the very first book of the Bible that we've been waiting for is right here. The blessing is that we can be disciples of Jesus. We can live under King Jesus forever. So wow, right? Pretty impressive. 
If we're critiquing Matthew and how he set up the Christmas card, right now we're saying, this looks pretty good. It's pretty polished. Everybody's smiling. The frame is good. The lighting is good. Hey, send this out, man. We will be the envy of our friends and family if we send this Christmas card. But that's only two names on Matthew's list. Only two people in the frame of this Christmas card. But Matthew's going to include some other names. Now remember, he's being very selective. He's skipped different generations. We see that. He skipped over some kings. He skipped over kings that were really known for being just vile and evil who had never repented and turned from their ways, who died very violent deaths. He decided to skip over their names. So we know he's being selective. He's that intentional photographer placing everybody in the right spot. So he chooses David. He chooses Abraham. And that's impressive. But then he zooms out. And the frame is filled with misfits. Very odd choices that he makes. If he wants the Savior to look impressive, he's chosen the wrong people. Look at this. Look at how the Christmas card is going to turn into more of a, a mugshot, right? A photo of criminals. We see this, look, in verse 3. We're going to jump down. I'm not going to read to you the whole genealogy. But once we get around King David, look at some of the names mentioned. Verse 5. It says, the father of Boaz by, I'm sorry, go back to verse 3. I don't want to miss this one. Verse 3, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Tamar. Now, here's what he's going to do. Now, to us, it may be hard to realize in English that that is a female name. That's a woman there. And Matthew is going to include four, four women, four mothers, now, this right, th right now would, would really strike a first century hearer as being incredibly odd. Because when they would do their family trees and their family genealogies, they would not include women. They would really follow the genealogy by the fathers. You can see a little bit of this in our culture where uh, when, when somebody gets married, it's the, it's the wife who takes the husband's name, right? So we may not have the same kind of... Uh, uh, choice in how we genealogies, but you see some of that. It's in our culture a little bit that somebody takes the last name of the husband. Well, this is how genealogies were kind of normally set up. So Matthew, including four women, is very peculiar. Now, it's not totally unheard of. We actually do see it in First Chronicles. We do see this kind of list, and there are women that are involved. But usually, if you're going to pick women, which is an odd thing to do, you're going to pick the matriarchs. I mean, you're going to pick the ladies of great faith, like Sarah or Rebecca or Rachel. That's who you're going to pick. But that's not who he picks here. He picks a very scandalous group. And here's what we're going to see. In the four women that he picks, they're outsiders. They're foreigners. They're not even Jewish. And on top of that, they carry the stigma of sexual sin. They carry shame. All right, we see it in the first one, Tamar. Who's Tamar? She's a mother of two. We see that. Well, Tamar is a very interesting story in the book of Genesis. You see, Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Judah. 
Judah was one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So if you think of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. So when we think of the Jews, we call them Israelites. So this is the, the kind of namesake or how they're known is from Israel or from Jacob. Again, his name was changed. So right after that, we have his son marries a woman and her name is Tamar. Now, Judah's son, again, Israel's son, and then you have Judah, and then his son marries Tamar. But before they can have a child, the husband dies. Now, Judah makes a promise to Tamar. He tells her, look, we'll figure it out. We'll make sure you have sons. And he just never makes good on this promise. So Tamar comes up with a plot, comes up with a plan. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to dress up like a prostitute. I'm going to cover my face a little bit. I'm going to find my father-in-law as he is traveling away from home. And I'm going to show myself as a prostitute. And I am going to get him to give me a son. So she sleeps with her father-in-law. And she has two sons that are listed right here. Just stop here for a moment. If you're Matthew, you're the photographer choices. You're, you're making selections. You're arranging the photograph. Why on earth would you include her? Why bring her up? Right? Why not keep that skeleton in the closet? That's shameful. Let's not bring out that family secret. I mean, if we're going to skip names, let's skip her. Why on earth would he do that? The card was good so far. David, Abraham. Things were nice. Things were pretty. And now we zoom out and we have Tamar there. What a shameful thing. But he does it again. Look at verse 5. It says, The father of Boaz by Rahab. Rahab. Another mother. Another female. Rahab. Who is this? Well, there's only one Rahab in the Old Testament. She's an outsider. She's a woman from the city of Jericho. When the people of God were going into the promised land and they were engaging in combat, one of their first battles was with the city of Jericho. And Rahab was somebody that they met. Now, Rahab seemed very noble because when the spies came in, she heard about the God of Israel and she said, I will hide you. I will keep you safe. And I want to follow your God. But we're told the book of Joshua, what her profession was. And guess what her profession was? She was a prostitute. Now, in the New Testament, her name is mentioned twice. In the book of Hebrews and in the book of James, she's called a righteous woman of faith. So we should believe that she kind of pushed away that old lifestyle and she pursued a more pious life. She moved away from prostitution. But still, if you're Matthew and you're clearly making selections and you're picking who is in this family photo, it's a nice story of redemption. It's a nice story of self-improvement. But still, why not keep that skeleton in the closet? Why not keep that shameful story of a prostitute in the line of the Savior of the world? Why include her? What is Matthew doing? His Christmas card is turning into a mugshot. It's not filled with the people that would make you proud, right? These are the ones that you don't talk about, the stories you don't tell, right? The crazy uncles you don't invite over to Thanksgiving because you don't want the drama, right? Matthew includes 
Another one, you can tell as he continues, he is incredibly intentional. He's making a point with this family tree, making a point with this genealogy. Same verse, verse 5. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. So we see in the lineage of King David, this one that's kind of center at the frame of Jesus' family Christmas card, we see really close to him is this woman named Ruth. Now, Ruth, she's not like the first two mothers mentioned, not like the first two women that are mentioned. She's not a prostitute. Now, she's a foreigner. She's definitely a foreigner, just like the other two women. She's a foreigner. She's a Moabite. Now, what's interesting to conclude, or to include her is interesting. She's a woman of great faith, yes, but the Moabites are very interesting people. You see, the origin of the Moabites is in incest. Here's what happened. Abraham, that one who sent her frame, had a brother, and his name was Lot. Lot had two daughters. And in a moment of desperation, out of fear, his daughters think, we're never going to have children. There's no eligible people to give us children. So this is the plan that they come up with. Kind of similar to Tamar's plan. They decide, hey, let's get our father drunk so we can have sons. So one of the daughters gets her father drunk one night. She conceives and has a son. And then the next night, the other daughter does the same thing. I mean, just gross, right? Scandalous. Later on in the book of Deuteronomy, when Moses is instructing the people how he wants them to assemble for worship, he says, hey, there's a group of people that I don't believe should be here for 10 generations. That's like 250 years. For 250 years, no Moabite can assemble and worship God. They cannot be a part of the assembly of the Lord. And why is that? Because when the people of Israel were leaving the land of Egypt and going to the promised land, the Moabites would not give them any help. This is a tribe of people who are historically known in the Old Testament as being shameful. Again, why include her? Why include that? I mean, again, another dirty secret, another family skeleton pulled out of the closet, another shameful woman given right here in the genealogy. Just imagine, if you're a first century Jew, you probably can't get past the first six verses of Matthew's gospel, and you're already just thrown off. You're thinking to yourself, if he's picking people, why is he picking these people? I was impressed by David, I was impressed by Abraham, but Tamar, oh man. I mean, sleeping with your father-in-law, that's gross. Right? And then we have Rahab, a prostitute. And then we have Ruth, who's a Moabite. And we know what their people are about. He picks one more. Again, close to David here. We're in verse 6. It says, And Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon. Now listen to this. Notice a change again. By the wife of Uriah. This is the first time that the person's actual name is not given. But actually, her husband's name is given. It says, the wife of Uriah. Who's that? That's Bathsheba. 
So why does Matthew say the wife of Uriah? I think what Matthew is trying to do, each time he includes these women, his point is they're outsiders. They're outsiders. And so what I think he's doing here is he's making that same point. We know Tamar was an outsider. She was a Canaanite. Right? We, we know that Rahab was an outsider. She was from the city of Jericho. She was not a part of the people of Israel. No, Ruth that was a Moabite. Now, Bathsheba, it says the wife of Uriah. That's interesting. Because Bathsheba was probably a Jew. From what we can tell of the genealogies that we find in the Old Testament, she was probably a Jew. Here, the wife of Uriah, which is interesting because Uriah was not a Jew. He was a Hittite, which probably means she took on his genealogy. She kind of took on his association. So she is a she's outside of the people of God in a sense, just like all these other women. And she too also carries the shame of sexual sin. King David who I said was impressive, got a wonderful promise from God. King David, in a moment of weakness, in a moment of sin, decides to commit adultery with Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. And then, to cover up the affair, he commits murder. He kills Uriah. Now imagine if you're Bathsheba. Now you have a son with the man who killed your husband. Talk about a stigma. Talk about shame there. What is Matthew doing? This Christmas card has turned into a mugshot full of criminals, full of misfits, people that are just odd choices. They don't belong. Why include these misfits? I don't think we have to go very far to find the answer. I think the answer is actually in Matthew chapter 1. We don't have to go outside of this chapter to find why Matthew is being so selective about who he picks in Jesus' Christmas card. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. It says, She shall bear a son, this is speaking of Mary, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sin. Who's his people? I think this verse looks backward. It looks backward at all the names that were listed. All of the people. All of those known for, that are just notorious for their sinful behavior. Those known for, for a history of shame. Those known for being sinners, the guilty, the misfits. He's saying God came, Jesus Christ came to save his people. And I don't think he's just talking about the Jewish people. Why? Because Matthew gives us a list, a family tree of foreigners, outsiders, People who are not Jewish, Moabites, Hittites, Canaanites, women of Jericho. He's giving us all of these outsiders. And he says to save them from their what? From their sin. It's clear why did he choose to include these people? Easy. Because Jesus is here to save sinners. 
God's love does not have any boundary of nations. God's love is not geographically contained. He loves the world. And God has graciously given the world a gift. God the Father has given his Son, and his Son is there to save his people from their sins. Why does Matthew give us a mugshot and not a pretty Christmas card? It's because Christmas is about mercy. It's about mercy and not merit. It's about the mercy of Jesus Christ coming to die on a cross for our sins, to take on all of our shame. We are not far away from these misfits. We're all misfits. We all have our moments of shame. We all have our moments of regret. I mean, if everybody knew all the skeletons in our closet, I don't think we would be a very proud people. But Matthew pulls them all out. He pulls them all out. He says, no more family secrets. Open up all the closets. All the skeletons are coming out. They're all right here because they're all going to be dealt with by Jesus Christ, the one who saves his people from their sins. So what does this mean for us as we enter into the Christmas season? What does this mugshot of a Christmas card mean for us this Christmas season? It means we need to celebrate the mercy of Christmas and not make it about merit, not making it about earning or achieving, but make it about receiving. As followers of Jesus Christ, I think one of the saddest things that happens during the Christmas season is this modern-day kind of portrayal of Santa Claus who checks the naughty and nice list. And if you're nice, you get everything you want. And if you're naughty, then you get cold. That has to be honestly the most anti-Christmas idea ever. I think that St. Nicholas would hate that his legend has become a system of merit. All of us deserve coal. All of us. And much worse. We don't want merit. There is no nice list. Nobody's name is on that list besides Jesus Christ. He's the only one. You talk about a quick trip around the world, you only have to go to one house, Bethlehem. But every house that would be visited would be people who are on the naughty list. And we don't want what's coming. We don't want what we deserve. Celebrating a system of merit is incredibly foolish. It's our undoing. We are celebrating our doom. We don't want merit. We want mercy. And that's what Christmas is. Christmas is mercy. It's God saving the misfits. So as a follower of Jesus Christ, how can you capture that? How can you keep Christmas about mercy and not merit? I want to challenge you with an idea. 
challenge with you an idea, maybe to kind of upset a little bit or, 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 or tilt the culture in a different direction, kind of tilt the dynamics of Christmas in a very mercy direction and not a merit direction. And I think your kids are going to love this application point. This is what I want you to do this Christmas. I want you to buy really good gifts. Spend some money. Spend some money. Buy some good gifts for those misfits. And why is that? Why buy a gift for the misfit? Because God gave his greatest gift to his misfits. Blow them away by your generosity. Give them a great gift, but do this too. Take that card. A card that you give with a gift. Hopefully you do that. Take a card, attach it to the gift, and remind your kids or your friends or family members about the mercy of God. Why did you give this gift? Because God gave his greatest gift. See every gift as an opportunity to make Christmas about mercy. To share the love of Jesus Christ, the gift of this Savior who saves people from their sin. Take that card. Don't let Hallmark say it for you. Don't. You write on that card. Handwrite on that card. I hope you enjoy this gift. I wanted you to have a smile on your face when you open that box. I wanted you to be thrilled. I wanted you to hunt for batteries right when you open that thing up because all you want to do is enjoy this gift. I wanted to give you a great gift this Christmas. And the reason I want to give you a great gift is because I've been given a great gift. And that's the gift of Jesus Christ. And that gift was something I didn't deserve. That gift was a gift of mercy. And that mercy has changed my life. What if we took every gift, every gift, as an opportunity to share about the mercy of Jesus Christ? Right? What if the impact of Christmas wasn't just on your credit score? What if the impact of Christmas wasn't just you accumulating debt? What if the impact of Christmas, the aftermath of Christmas, is that people were embracing the mercy of God because you mentioned it on your card that you gave with your gift? Capture the opportunity to share the mercy of God. Write that card. Give a great gift. And let's see what God does with it. Now, maybe you're here and, and, and you're not yet a Christian. You're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ. But the Christmas season oftentimes get us, gets us thinking about spiritual things. So I'm so thankful that you joined us. And hopefully you'll continue to joy, join us throughout our Christmas series. What's my encouragement to you based on this passage? My encouragement to you is to embrace the mercy of Christmas. One of the things that saddens me the most when people are exploring Christianity or they're, or they're looking into it maybe for the first time or, or maybe they're revisiting it. Maybe, maybe they were Christians or, or they went to church when they were young. Maybe that's you and you're now kind of coming back to church and it's the season to do that. So you're kind of maybe revisiting something that you feel like you, you lost before. One of the things that makes me really sad is when people start to examine again or maybe examine for the first time, what makes me sad is that people sometimes will, will see Christianity as this religious uh, system of merit. 
What I mean by that is this. It's people feel like I have to behave right before I belong in the family of God. And we put this kind of step in place. If I behave, then I belong. Let me tell you right up front, that is not Christianity. That is not Christianity at all. It's not behave and then you belong. It's believe and you belong. And that belief that causes that belonging that now you're adopted in the family of God, then that changes your behavior. We're not accepted by God because we clean ourselves up. We're not accepted by God because we start going to church or reading our Bibles or we start praying. We're not accepted by God because we start being charitable or being nice or we buy good gifts for our grandparents or something. Or we're not found acceptable by God. It's not that we belong to God because we behave. It's because we believe in Jesus Christ. We believe that his death and resurrection is the only means of forgiveness. The only way to take away our shame. The only way to change us from the inside. We believe in Jesus Christ. And then we belong in the family of God. And then God starts to change our behavior. So my encouragement to you this Christmas season is to believe. Believe in Jesus Christ. Believe in the one who came to save you from your sin, to give you mercy. You belong in the family of God. He desires you to be in that Christmas card. He wants you in the family. That's why he sent his son to die on the cross and rise again. If you believe in him, if you put your trust in Jesus Christ as the only way for you to be forgiven, give over your life. That's what it means to believe and to trust. That's the moment you belong. That's the moment you're in the family Christmas card. I encourage you, believe, believe, believe this Christmas season. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we thank you for who you are to us in Christ. Oh, Father, we celebrate this Christmas. We celebrate the Christmas card that's a mugshot. And why is it a mugshot, Father? It's a mugshot because we're in it. It's a mugshot because I'm in it. And I'm guilty, Lord. I'm guilty. I'm a criminal. I'm, I'm a misfit. I'm not any better than Tamar or Rahab or, 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 or Ruth or Bathsheba or even King David or the king's not even mentioned. Father, I, bringing me in to that family photo changes it. But Father, you love to bring us into your family. You sent us the greatest gift in your son, Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection to clean us up, to, 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 to take away our sin, to remove our shame. And now you boast as the one who brings those with shame back into the family. Father, I pray, I pray this Christmas that we capture this moment. I pray that we not just give gifts, but we'd give a testimony of your mercy. We, t- we tell stories of your grace. Father, I know that our kids and our friends and our family members, they all have lists and, and, and gifts that they would, they would want from those, those lists, and they all have aspirations of giving that top gift and all those things. And Father, I pray that you enable our people to give really great gifts. I, I pray that you do. 
not just pricey gifts, but thoughtful gifts. I pray, Father, that our people are able to give great gifts, but I also pray that they'd use those opportunities to write wonderful cards that speak of your mercy. Let us not miss the opportunity to speak of your mercy this Christmas. And Father, for those that don't yet know you, they wouldn't call you Father yet. Father, I pray that you're drawing them to yourself. You're calling out to them. You're saying, get in the family photo. Go stand by your brothers and sisters. Come in the family. You belong. Oh, Father, I pray that they would see their first step towards you is not that they would start behaving right, but they would believe. Believe in your son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray you give them the greatest gift this season, and that's belief in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your time. Give us a great Christmas season. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Again, thank you for joining us. We hope you have a wonderful Christmas season, and we'll see you again next Sunday.